Welcome to a third season of A Healthy Dose, a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Krause, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners and general partner of Town Hall Ventures. The guys shoot the shit about healthcare, usually with leaders from the entrepreneurial, executive, investment, and policy political worlds. Interspersed with that, they rip each other about music, clothes, valuations, and investment track records. We just uh, wrapped up recording a podcast with a friend of mine and also just a great leader in healthcare. He runs Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and the larger health system, Beth Israel Leahy, Kevin Tab. Just a super smart, dedicated doc himself who's risen up to leadership in our yeah. industry. And frankly, what I appreciate most about him was like, you know, very blunt and very totally. candid in his assessment of, <laughs> of like how the heck we got here. And also what they're trying to do to get us out of here, right? Yeah, I mean, I framed it as I didn't want to get political, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) Shocker. And he was really like, you want to talk about honest? And I respect the hell out of the way he took that question. But also like we've talked about leadership. I actually think, you know, we're talking to people who are leading during these times, which actually has been super invigorating for me. I think it probably has for you too, these podcasts is because you just, I mean, these are people who are really serving. Kevin actually was in the Israeli army. So I think he knows what it means to serve early in his life. And, you know, he's just a leader because even when you asked him about, you know, they're doing real work at BIDMC on vaccines, right? I mean, they're one of the leading places and he was cautious, right? He's like, you know, I hope it happens, but at best it's going to be 12 to 18 months and wanted to set a cautious tone, which a good scientist does and also a good leader does because we know these things may not work and you don't want to create a lot of false hope for people who frankly, really need hope right now. A lot of people are relying on hope to get through it, right? Think about, I mean, his responsibilities. I think he said they are responsible for 25% of the healthcare delivered in the state of Massachusetts. Is that right? Yeah. I mean- Yeah, it is right. And you can hear in his voice what we're seeing news of, which is the disparity in mm. what populations are being affected by this. And Yeah, he said 40% of those who are intubated are of disadvantaged populations, uh, Latinx mean, and African-American. I yeah. mean, seriously, like, can you imagine how, how he kind of goes home at night with the pressure of that job and addressing this crisis for 25% of people in Massachusetts who might get, I mean, that's just, and just to have that, personality and to be so giving in his time and his insight. I mean, what a, what a great human being. I mean, that was awesome. That was really good. All right, my friend. You sick of me? No, it's, this is great. I get to see you. (laughs) Although my video was a little clunky, so you don't get to see me, but I don't look that great to be honest. (laughs) It's Friday. It's Friday, April 17th at three 40. It's not my best look. (laughs) All right. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you soon. We're lucky, Trevor, to have Kevin Tab, yeah. who is the CEO of Beth Israel Leahy Health now, which is a leading health system in the area that I'm from, uh, Massachusetts, Eastern Massachusetts, but also for the nation. And Kevin has a 
long history of working in many different care settings and, and being a leader in healthcare. So Kevin, thank you in these times for taking a few minutes to join us on A Healthy Dose. Great. Happy to be here. Thanks. Give folks who don't know a little bit of overview of Beth Israel Leahy Health. Yeah, Beth Israel Leahy Health is a relatively new healthcare system in Massachusetts. We've been around for a year. We formed as a result of a, a merger of a, a number of different hospitals and healthcare systems, in fact, and we're now 13 hospitals, about 4,000 physicians out in the community, 35,000 employees. So we're one of the two largest healthcare systems in New England. How's it going right now? Give us a sense on the ground of where your organization's able to kind of get out in front of what you were seeing from Seattle and New York. And you're obviously a national leader and spent time on the West Coast. So I'm assuming you might have been able to talk to UW leadership or others in New York. So just Kind of give us a sense of what, what's happening, what's going on in Boston right now. Yeah, well, we are, uh, I'd say, extraordinarily busy and very, very full. Our system takes care of, depending on the day, between 20 and 25 percent of the population of Massachusetts. And that means, therefore, that we're taking care of somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the COVID patients, including many of them that are really, really sick. We certainly did speak to others around the country. You know, Washington uh, saw this earlier than us. Although I will say, I think the situation on the ground here in Massachusetts is very different ultimately than what they ended up experiencing in Washington. And unfortunately now, Massachusetts is in the top three states in the country or bottom three states, however you want to call it, in terms of the number of cases and number of deaths. So it really has taken off and skyrocketed here more so than almost anywhere else in the country uh, with the exception of New York and New Jersey. So it's really gotten very, very busy here. And Kevin, are you guys at the apex now of the curve or where do you think you are? Well, that's the question that everybody wants the answer to. and, And we want the answer to it too. I'd say it's funny because I do press interviews, uh, almost daily and it doesn't matter what the topic is. Really what people want to know is, so are we through with this yet? And the short answer is we don't know and we won't know until we're on the other side of it. I don't believe, though, that we are yet at the peak. We're well into the surge. We have seen a slowing of the increase. So whereas for a good three plus weeks up until the end of last week, we were seeing daily increases in the high single to double digit percentages. I say things have slowed down now. And when we look at rolling seven day averages, uh, we're down in the one to 3% increases in terms of number of COVID positive patients we're hospitalizing and other things that we look at. So it's still rising, but it's rising at a slower pace than it was before. Under normal circumstances, what's the rough payer mix that uh, Beth Israel Deaconess is dealing with? And are you seeing that change because the urgency and ambulances and emergency medical transports are bringing to the local or the nearest emergency rooms? What's What populations would you normally see and how are you seeing that change with the COVID response? It's a really interesting question. It's not so much the payer mix per se, although that has changed too. It's the demographic makeup of the patients that we're seeing. So first to answer your question about payer mix, um, we're roughly 50% commercial and Mm -hmm. 50% governmental made up of mainly Medicare, but also a significant portion of Mm -hmm. uh, Medicaid. 
But what we're seeing that is really very, very disturbing is that more than 40% of the COVID-positive patients in our ICUs that are intubated come from a very small number of neighborhoods and towns. And Hmm. Latinx and Black communities are responsible for 30 to 40% of the patients. And that is very, very different than what we historically see. So they would make up somewhere between 15 and 17% of our historical discharges. And if you walk into ICUs, you are struck by um, how much this has hit disproportionately a number of communities of color. It's really very disturbing. Is that a socioeconomic implication Is because uh, these populations may have been working we're staying at work longer, we're, is it housing related? Is it traditional access to healthcare system related? What are you attributing it to? Is it, because we're seeing it all over the place, but yeah. I was just interested in what you're seeing in Boston. So the short answer, I think, to the question, like almost everything that we're asked about COVID is, we don't really know the answer, we can speculate. My own And I think others speculate that the answer to that question is that it's complex. It's almost certainly a combination of communities of color disproportionately suffer from a large number of comorbid illnesses, more so than uh, the rest of the population. We know that has an effect in terms of how severely ill they are. But it's also true that they are not able to stay at home and Zoom. They're more frequently yeah. uh, exposed mm-hmm. through the kinds of jobs that they continue to do, whether it's taking public transport and other things. And uh, the fact that when somebody is ill, you can't quarantine yourself in a separate room. You frequently have in many of the neighborhoods that we're seeing people come from multi-generational families live in, yeah. in small houses. And I think it's probably a combination of all of those things. We're seeing the result it's devastating some of these communities. We're seeing towns like Chelsea, which is a town right outside of Boston, which is among the hardest hit towns per capita in the country now, and is a overwhelmingly Latino community. And it's just being devastated by this disease. Hey, Kevin, uh, we want to talk a little bit about what BI is doing to help, obviously. I mean, you're doing many things, but you're also one of the more innovative institutions being an academic medical center. So we want to talk about sort of forward-looking things that you're doing, but I just want to look backwards for a second. And, you know, clearly there was a lack of PPE at the federal government level, at the state level, at the individual health system level. Can you sort of diagnose why? Was it a case for your system? If it was, what did you do about it? And kind of looking back, like, what do we do to diagnose this problem and how do we not have this problem again? Or is it inevitable given the surge, just the vast amount of surge? We were hit as badly by this as anybody out there. And I think everybody around the country has been hit in the same way. Nobody in this country was adequately prepared. And I would venture to say, I don't think that anybody, there are very few countries in the world that were adequately prepared. There are some countries that were able to mobilize really quickly in ways that were very effective. You know, Singapore certainly comes to mind, but you don't see the scale that you see in this country or in China or in Europe. The challenges here have to do with, this is unprecedented, first of all. There's nobody that believed or imagined that it would get as bad as it is. I think many people knew and believed that a pandemic was coming. There's no question. But I think there was not a prediction that this one would end up being as devastating as it was. Combined with 
global supply chain issues. So we're dependent on a global supply chain that has shut down in a global pandemic, and it's really uh, wreaked havoc. And we'll probably uh, change the way that we think about how we procure, how we rely on ourselves, on stuff produced in this country. You know, I think that there's a lot of soul searching going on at the moment. I don't want to get political. I'm going to try to have this be an intellectual engagement versus a political engagement. But this country was notified of the risk of this pandemic weeks before major mobilization occurred. And for that period of time, there was a general, I think it's pretty well documented, general dismissing of the severity of it at various levels of government. And and during that period of time, what at least I've kind of heard was China, Iran, South Korea, Italy, and others bought up huge amounts of the global supply chain of PPE and ventilators. They were affected with this earlier and they responded by doing what you would do. There were decisions made around not using international or WHO testing. So I guess the question is, I understand that we weren't prepared and I understand that it's going to change the way we think about it, but without getting too political or pointing fingers, I guess I, I guess the question for yeah. you, Kevin, is when you in like a leading hospital leadership role, when how much do you guys take guidance on these things from the CDC or the FDA or the White House. And when those organizations are saying, we're going to provide you testing and there's no need to worry about this, we got it under control and, you know, PPE is not going to be an issue. I'm not saying BID particularly, but just how much do leaders in health systems actually react to that? And what, did we miss an opportunity because of that initial reaction? I guess I'll bite at that and uh, say, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> and say a couple of different things. I don't see how this can be characterized, this being the way that this pandemic has been dealt with at the federal level. I don't see how this can be characterized as anything other than a complete and absolute debacle. And I think objectively, there is no question uh, that lives have been lost because there was not a more urgent and not only more urgent, but more coherent and cohesive response at the mm -hmm. federal level. It mm -hmm. doesn't surprise me. And I actually, I think some of it's political, but it's not all political. Some of it has to do with the structure of healthcare in this country. I mm -hmm. trained and practiced in another country, and I'm frequently asked the differences between the healthcare system in, say, Europe and in the United States. And I always say, the biggest difference is there's no such thing as a healthcare system in the United States. There are a bunch of silos that are not connected to each other. And we are suffering the consequences of that now. That being said, it is certainly true that the federal government could have and should have responded in a more timely and a more comprehensive fashion than they did, and by the way, than they still are. Now, specifically in answer to your question, because of that, we don't rely at all on federal guidance or response. We're on our own, on our mm -hmm. own in this case is frequently on a state-by-state -state basis. And I think there's really good collaboration and coordination in the state of Massachusetts, but we're not waiting for or relying on a response to come from the federal government at this point. Have the historical, I don't want to call them adversarial, but you know, in theory, the competitive health systems 
in Boston. It's like one of the most, you know, it's one of the best healthcare markets, but it's also one of the most competitive healthcare markets. Have these organizations, Governor Cuomo challenged all of New York's hospital systems to form one system in this process. Have you guys taken steps like that or is everyone collaborating Absolutely. but not really coalescing? No, it's really been amazing and comforting to see. You're right. There's fierce competition in the Massachusetts and certainly greater Boston market in healthcare between a number of systems. That has been wiped away. We virtually meet and talk, the leaders of the healthcare systems in Massachusetts, multiple times every day. We coordinate where to send patients. We move equipment around. We talk about what needs to be done multiple times a day. It's almost as if we have a single healthcare system at the moment in in Massachusetts, which is, again, unprecedented. There's never been anything like it. That is really a bright point, I would say, and really gratifying to see. One thing I wanted to ask, following up on your point of you were taking the the mission into your own hands in terms of PPE. And and I want to focus on testing because I believe you guys have sort of mobilized your own testing capabilities and development in-house. And maybe you could talk about that, what you've done, and also then where we are when it comes to the state of testing and where we need to be to quote unquote, return back to work, which is now the mantra that's being sort of bandied about. Yeah. And let me just clarify, when I said take our mission into our own hands, I think that's partly true, but not completely true. We've been lucky that the state, the governor in this case, has made huge efforts to look for and acquire PPE from all over, from all around the world, in addition to what we do. And that's coordinated with everybody. So we're not completely on our own. And I have to say that we have received some help, a small number of ventilators and other things from the federal government. So that's starting to come through. But for the most part, we have been on our own. And your question was, sorry? Testing. So testing. We were, I think, first out of the gate within Beth Israel Lehi Health at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center with, I'd call it, large volume of high throughput testing. And the reason that we were able to move so quickly is we had a couple of really smart entrepreneurial young faculty in our lab, in our pathology department, who saw within the first couple of days that we needed testing badly and we were not going to be getting it quickly if we simply waited for the large companies Mm. to get around to giving it to us. And so they found a small local biotech in Cambridge. They took a look at the machines that we already had They went in and reprogrammed existing machines to work with new reagents in a new way over the period of a weekend, validated it in 48 hours, got emergency FDA approval, and we were off and running. We saw that it worked and we quickly ordered more of these machines. We've got four of them and we now have the most in the country of this type of machine. You know, it's not massive amounts of testing. It lets us do about 1,500, between 1,500 and 2,000 tests a day. And so that's enough for Hmm. our own system. But we can do it with six-hour turnaround, and we got it up more quickly than, you know, really we've seen around the country. And that's been really helpful to us, for sure. And Kevin, is that going to be mostly used for patients who are at BIDMC, which presumably are mostly COVID-related right now, as well as frontline care workers? Is that what you're using the 1,500 a day for today? When we started, we were able to do about 700, then went up to 1,000, then 1,500. And as we have increased the volume that we have the ability to do, we've 
increase the type of people in the situations that we're doing testing in. So we tier this. We started by testing only people who were sick enough to be hospitalized with symptoms that were suggestive of COVID and testing healthcare workers that were symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And then we've begun to expand the criteria as we've had more capacity. And as others have come online with capacity, uh, we've been able to free some of this up. And so now we're testing outpatients and other things. But it really has been mainly for our own system, uh, the Beth Israeli Health System. And then we've extended it out into the communities that have really suffered a lot. We've extended it out to some of the other hospitals that have not had testing capabilities, to the prison system. What we want to make sure we do is we don't sit on any capacity around testing that wouldn't be used. So the surge passes, you're down the other end, let's hope for the day of the apex. Do you think you use that capacity for community-based testing? Because obviously testing is going to be a key piece of the return back to work movement, how, you know, yeah. whether that be a month, two months, yeah. six months from now. Well, we're already testing out in the community. And some I, I mentioned uh, Chelsea as a community that's been hit hard and we're testing there. We're testing in some of the other neighborhoods. So we will extend it in the community, but it's not going to be enough. And uh, this is PCR testing. We really are going to need ultimately antibody testing, which is not what we're doing with this type of test in order to get our hands around recovering from the pandemic. Very helpful. I wanted to stay with, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon, let's have a optimistic point of view and stay on the back end of this surge. And, and you're talking about, you know, how testing evolves, but how do hospitals and health systems like you all react after the COVID surge? I was talking to the CEO of a major New York City health system this morning, and, and he said, look, We've got to change all of our clinical procedures because, you know, right now we're 80 to 90% COVID patients. We're going to go to 20% COVID patients from a revenue standpoint as we kind of reopen our health system. But every one of those patients is going to have to be treated with either a COVID protocol or a non-COVID protocol. Are they, do we view them as being COVID positive or not? And that's going to change the way we treat them. Have you even started to think of what you guys will look like after this kind of surge starts to wane and what what major hospitals systems and hospitals look like you know telemedicine or elective procedures it's so many interesting things that are emerging out of that right now we are starting to think about what exactly do our next steps look like how do we plan for the recovery in essence and and how do we do that in the midst of the pandemic when we haven't even yet reached the peak and I've challenged our own leadership team to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to treat this acute crisis that we're dealing with, but also start to get ready for the recovery. And we're thinking about this sort of in terms of four key buckets of questions that we need to answer. The first is what are the immediate steps we've got to take even in advance of reopening just to stabilize the organization, to support our employees and sort of to set the foundation for the long-term recovery. The second is what are the key criteria that need to be met in order to begin the reopening of all the urgent and elective services? And then the third is how do we develop and maintain what I call situational awareness so that we can make sure that we stage nimble, flexible response as the circumstances change pretty rapidly with things like a dashboard with daily data indicators and rapid response strategies. And then lastly, and I think in some ways the most interesting is 
what sort of changes, some of which will be permanent, are we going to make to how we deliver care and manage our institutions? Whether it's simple things like policies and protocols or physical infrastructure or how we work together as a system. And so it's all of those things together. And we don't have answers to those questions yet. But I think that those, what we know that those are the things that we're going to have to answer as we start to move into the recovery phase. Yeah, it was interesting. The CEO was saying one of the things that they've done over the COVID crisis is they have been, this is a hospital that sees a lot of government populations. And so particularly for Medicaid, they, in the maternity ward, they have been birthing and stabilizing and discharging healthy moms and babies in 24 hours. Hmm. And, you know, it's a really interesting dynamic, right? That's if they can do that and they've been very successful, their feeling is they're safer at home than they are in a hospital right now. The other thing that's really interesting is I was talking to um, interventional cardiologists and you know, he's sitting idle. There's not a lot of interventional cardiology work being done right now. Cath labs are pretty empty and pretty quiet. And so, and yet we haven't had enough time, but it doesn't seem like there's been a, an adverse effect from tons and tons of cardiac. It's just fascinating to wonder what the revenue mix of large hospitals looks like post-COVID. There are a couple of things there. First of all, there's some really interesting changes that I think are good and will be permanent. The massive shift to telemedicine in the space of a week where we've been trying to do this for years and haven't been able to get physicians and patients to adopt. And all of a sudden, I follow this on a daily basis. We're seeing thousands and thousands of telemedicine visits. By the way, I saw patient satisfaction scores this morning. They're very high with these telemedicine visits. I don't think we're going back. I mean, I think some of it will, but I think we've moved forward into the world of telemedicine. Where I'd push back on, though, is, you know, we've seen a massive drop in the number of acute MIs that activate the cath lab. That is not because there are fewer heart attacks. That's because people are scared to come in and get treated. And that is not good. Mm. And I think we're going to be facing the consequences of that and people who are avoiding coming in for chemotherapy and people who are not getting their acute renal failure taken care of. We're going to be dealing with the consequences of those things for a very long time to come. And you see some evidence of that, actually, even in numbers out of New York, but certainly in Italy and the Netherlands and the UK, where you look at excess mortality And we don't think that COVID is responsible for more than 50 to 60% of that excess mortality. There is, there are a whole bunch of things that are happening, people not getting care they need at the same time because people are scared to come into hospitals. That data on a number of different clinical fronts is all the people who were diagnosed with cancer and haven't been able to be operated on, all those who have chemo. That will be incredibly interesting to see as we, as you start to think about a healthcare system that changes to digital or, you know, people think differently about it. Uh, that will be very interesting to see what the implications yeah. of this will be. Yeah. Want to yeah. wrap up here, respectful of your time. You're a busy man these days. Would love to talk about the real hope here, which is that there's either an effective antiviral or, you know, ideally a vaccine that arises in a reasonable period of time. And I know you've got one of the leading doctors in the country working on this, you, being an academic medical center. You have- yeah a lot of riches in that area. I'd be curious, could you comment on the work that's being done, not only your institution, but your understanding broadly and what your expectation is for when a drug that will bring an end to this will be available, if at all? Yeah, so there is a lot of great work going on at our institution and around the country. 
You referenced the vaccine work. We have somebody named Dr. Dan Baruch who's working with J&J on a potential vaccine. Very promising, although there are lots of good groups around the country working on things. We're participating in many of the multi-center trials for a variety of different potential drugs. I want to inject a note of caution, though. I think that there is a real obvious desire by everybody to find something quickly. But we need to be careful to study these things appropriately and not jump to conclusions. And I think, unfortunately, there have been some examples, hydroxychloroquine being an example. Another example, even yesterday, you know, a leak of a little bit of a result around use of remdesivir. Yeah, I saw that. I would suggest to people that we don't know yet. And anecdotes are not only not helpful, they can be harmful. We have to conduct these trials and do them well to see what helps and what doesn't. And we just don't know the answer yet. And the fact that we all want an answer so quickly is understandable, but may lead us to the wrong conclusions and to doing things that are harmful. I think it's highly unlikely uh, that we are going to have a vaccine if we move at light speed in anything less than 12 to 18 months. And Mm -hmm. uh, as Mm -hmm. it relates to an antiviral, I just don't know the answer. There's a lot of good stuff out there that people are trying. I don't think that the anecdotes out there tell us whether they will be helpful or not. I think conducting trials, comparing them, you know, to other alternatives are going to be important in understanding that ultimately. Just want to say, I can't imagine how busy you are. I'm sure you're, I, I know, knowing you, you're working 24-7. And on behalf of, you know, folks in the Massachusetts area, I obviously want to say thank you for not only you, but your team, all of your docs and nurses and staff who are on the front lines. Thank you for what you're doing. And, and thank you for taking 30 minutes out of your busy end of your week to talk with Trevor and me and our listeners. We're trying to do a bunch of these and having perspectives like you of a, someone who's an expert and highly regarded industry is super helpful. So thanks a lot. Hey, Kevin, new twist on the healthy dose. Just take us out with a silver lining, something that something yeah. that you are optimistic about, you know, as a result of this. And we'll wrap it up with that. And thank you so much. I know you're swamped and we really sure. appreciate it. You never really want to say silver lining in the in a time when you've got really tens of thousands of people that will die and financial devastation also, but I also Mm -hmm. believe that there are going to be many changes that will be for the good. And I think that the example of rapid acceleration towards telemedicine is one. I also think that there will be more than ever an understanding of how important developing a cohesive healthcare system across the country will be, how important making sure that people have access to healthcare. You know, that's not a theoretical issue anymore. It's everybody out there now understands it. And I think we're going to see movement in ways that we would not have seen prior to this pandemic. So I think that there will be uh, some good things that will come of it. Totally agreed. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes. And if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please tweet us at A Healthy Dose Pod. Oh,